We talk a lot on this show about how artists make money in the changing music industry. So today we wanted to talk about how artists at all different levels can and do give back to causes they believe in. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today we'll talk about how artists can be activists no matter what stage of their career they're at. From Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, a career musician in a famous band, to Liv Bruce and Ben Hopkins of Power Bottom, a band who just released their first full length. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Mike McCready of Pearl Jam. Thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What. Thank you, Portia. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. So I'm excited to talk to you. Our topic today is artists giving back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've talked to some people so far about sort of how they started realizing that they wanted to help other people when they got to a certain level. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about sort of the process of that for you guys. I think uh, in terms of giving back with our band and uh, our individuals that are in this band, when we started to see some sort of success, we kind of felt, you know, at that time that this is a good measure of how we could give back because we have a lot, <laughs> you know, now we're, we're blessed with kind of an abundance of success early on. And, you know, there's so much out there that I, I, maybe growing up in the Northwest, we were, you know, aside from Eddie, but he's very, you know, in tune with kind of the similar values that we all have in terms of giving back to, you know, organizations that need help, whether it be like local social services or women's services, or it could be a, a myriad of many things. But it, it started right around the beginning of our career, I'd say, as when the record started selling. And I think, you know, we always kind of had a giving back kind of a feel to us anyways, but it just got bigger and bigger as our band kind of got bigger. Does that make sense? I don't know if that sounds... Absolutely. Fun, and yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm old, old enough to have lived through the beginning of, of your band. And, and that really was a time, you know, people who didn't necessarily live through that time won't have as visceral an, an experience of it. I mean, we were coming out of the 80s when things were very glam, things were very like, you know, yeah. big hair. And, and to have, you know, bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which were like, people wearing their, you know, regular street clothes and just playing great yeah. rock. You know, it was a real sea change and it really did feel closer. You know, it was it was a very punk thing. You know, in Olympia, I'm not from Olympia, but my husband started the record label Kill Rock Stars in Olympia. So it was like Bikini Kill cool. and Unwound and, you sure. know, these bands that were really just like, you know, local people making things happen it felt very personal. You know, it felt very like, yes, you are a real person and yes, you do have, you know, you're not this removed rock star. Yeah. Well, I think it, in in terms of that value system, in terms of the Seattle bands that had come out at that time, much like the Olympia bands, I'm guessing, was that it was a do-it-yourself kind of thing. Growing up in the 80s in Seattle, there was not a lot of major bands that would kind of, I mean, there were some, but a lot of bands would pass over Seattle. They go from Portland directly to Vancouver. And so, you know, we missed a lot of stuff and, you know, we were aware of things there, but you kind of had to put on your own shows. There wasn't a ton of places to play. The city looked down on it. You had to have a million dollar insurance policy. Just, it was insane. The kind of silly hoops you had to jump through with my, I had a little band called Shadow. We were a metal band out of there. And so it was like that. And then Green River, of course, and then all those bands, they, you know, everybody had to put on their own shows, you know, and that was, that was maybe how we 
got to know each other and got to like kind of support each other maybe instead of, you know, there's a healthy competition in terms of the bands. I'm not talking about the getting back necessarily, but we would, you know, we'd take care of each other and play and play on each other's shows, go to each other's parties and stuff. Cause it was so small. Yeah. But I, and I think that, you know, growing up in the Northwest, whether it's Olympia, Portland or Seattle, you, you're attuned to the environment and like, well, maybe we should do something about the, the Puget Sound being cleaned up or, you know, social services in, in downtown Seattle for the homeless or Mary's place or anything like that. You, you're kind of aware of those things. I, I would, I, I guess more so, you know, in terms of the bands that were coming out of the eighties and stuff that was, you know, there was a different, that was a different thing. It was more of excess and, you know, how much can you spend and how crazy can you get? And, you know, I, I, and, and that didn't, that wasn't the case with the bands that came out of the Northwest, I believe. I think you're totally right. And it's so funny to hear you say that there used to be a time when Seattle was not a destination for bands to play because the city made it difficult, but it's so crazy. Nowadays, everyone's like, oh my God, Seattle, you know, like, ah, music mecca. Isn't that funny? (laughs) I mean, when I think of, just not to harp on that too long, when I think about, there was always the, there was the blue laws or whatever. You couldn't, the all ages shows were basically impossible to put on in Seattle unless you had a million dollar insurance policy and i forget how you even got that and then you have to rent two cops this is like an 81 or 82 um and to, to play unless you had a kind of a promoter which there weren't a lot of them at the time and you couldn't you couldn't drink and be in the club at the same time as you could in portland God. you know what i mean you could have a or in la you could have a, a, a wristband if you're 18 you can and you could be in a bar Isn't that nuts? you couldn't do that in Seattle forever still can't do it actually come to think of it So many things have grown out of there. I mean, like you're saying about activism, it's a very activist town, you know, with the Vera Project starting and overturning the teen dance ordinance and just so much has happened. The teen dance ordinance, I remember when that came along. (laughs) What is it, the 50s? (laughs) It was Footloose. (laughs) (laughs) But but you're right, though. Vera is a, you know, was an antidote to that, you know, or, or an outcropping of that. And it showed that the city of Seattle or whoever that was against all that, like, look at people can put on these all ages shows and be respectful and, or, or whatever, being respectful, but, you know, actually just do it because they want to do it, you know? Exactly. And, and that was, that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. To see that, that, that happened. And which happened in, in, in Olympia too. I mean, oh, yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't live there in the actual, you know, heyday of the very early nineties when everything was kind of going down, but it has always been an incredibly supportive scene, you know? I mean, really, mm-hmm. I remember when the kids from the gossip, you know, who who eventually became the gossip, moved to Olympia just because they loved Bikini Kill, just because they loved, you know, certain bands that ha- were from there. And they were like, yeah, and they were like 17 years old. And they were like, we're going there because that's going to be that's amazing. That's awesome that that was a destination. Yeah. It's such a, <laughs> just a small place, you know? From Arkansas. Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be a big, that would be a big city for Arkansas. You know what I mean? Yeah, in terms of. Totally. Well, then, well, you know, Slater Kinney was out of there and mm-hmm. certainly that was, you know, a, a, a large draw to it. Imagine Bikini Kill. Seven Year Bitch, not from there. Are they, are they from there? I'm pretty Berlin. sure they're from New York. I think so. Are they really? I think I so. Uh, you might be right. I'm, I'm, I can't really remember. I just remember when I was in bands in New York, I used to see them wandering around the streets, which doesn't mean they okay. started there, but I what think band it, were you? I was in a band called the Hissy Fits in the 90s and 2000s. Okay. Right. Pop cool. punk band out of New York. 
sweet, sweet. Can I find any stuff on it on, online? Or? I, you know, I think so. I'm not totally sure. We did have two albums, so I haven't really oh, cool. kept up with that. Maybe the maybe we're on iTunes? That's a good question. Mike, you're going to make me go yeah. look. <laughs> okay, no, no idea. I'll go look myself, too. <laughs> So I'm a music historian freak. Oh, perfect. Anyways, go for it. Anyways, so yes, I agree with you that I think the Northwest really did have a have a different kind of a feel to it. It had a supportive, you know, sort of community feel. And so you're right. It's not shocking to to think that artists from the Northwest would be, you know, first in line to be giving back. So the Vitology Foundation that you guys started Mm -hmm. seems really cool. And you guys do a lot of different things, right? Yeah, it's a uh, how that started. I'm, it, it's going to be a little bit hard for me to explain, but I, I wanted, I would love to give it the best explanation I can try to. But um, it, it was basically, you know, two, one to two dollars off of every ticket we would sell at our shows. We would donate to, and we would have meetings and, and say, hey, this organization needs it. You know, Treehouse, for an example, for kids that are in Seattle that need to get, you know, free clothes and free kind of uh, school supplies and, and stuff like that five times a year. So that's a good example of where we wanted to, to give some stuff. That was kind of my thing. And Jeff's was skate parks and uh, building skate parks all around and Native American reservations. And Stones is very much parts of Conservation International, I think is one of his. And so at any rate, it, it morphed from us kind of voting on what we wanted to give it to, to splitting it five ways in terms of our band, maybe six ways now with our manager of like, Okay, let's let's put on three dollars extra per ticket, two to three dollars, and then split that five ways, and then we can choose which ones we can give to right now. And that was that kind of was an easier way to do it. We also did that kind of around the United States when we play we played locally and at different shows and, and find uh, organizations that were maybe in Cleveland and they were growing they're farming on the roofs, rooftops of Cleveland and like little, little grassroots organizations. We would donate some of the ticket sales from that, you know, those places when we were in those places. Mm. But Vitology now is primarily kind of the ones that the individual in the band want to give to. Awesome. It also says on the website that you can make a request for a grant. So there must be that option to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that would go through Nicole Vandenberg and we vet all those organizations and, the request to see if they're, you know, legitimate and if they're of, you know, if we're into it. And, and Nicole will send that out and we'll all look at them and go, oh, yeah, this is a cool one. Let's, let's do that. And Stone, uh, there's one called Emergency Services, which is downtown, which just takes care of homeless people just immediately on the street or any kind of thing that's going on in the street. No questions asked. And that's a pretty cool one, too. So mine's a Crohn's and Clytus Foundation. Some of it ends up forgetting what they are right now. And I, I, they're all kind of I have to look at the sheet again, but we just, we figure it out every year, like what we want to give to. Oh, so they can change every year? Uh, they could, yes. Oh, wow. Or they can be added to or, oh, you know, yeah. That's awesome. It's not, it's not written in, it's not written in stone. It's kind of, it's malleable in cool. terms of what needs help. It's a growing kind of organization or organism. Right. Itself, it's like it. an amoeba, right? It's like sprawling. Yeah, hopefully amoeba of good. <laughs> an amoeba of goodness. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So I am friends with Tim Bierman. He and I are on the Grammys oh. board, the Pacific Northwest okay. chapter. He is mm-hmm. rad. I love that guy. Yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah. And I interviewed him like at the like the first episode of this radio show, like a year ago or more, mm-hmm. about his job because he's got a really interesting job running your fan club. Yeah. And your fan club in general has is fascinating because 
there's so much that you guys do just for fans. And I think that's a really cool aspect of giving back too. Oh yeah. I, of course I, I feel like that, that, that's, that's part of the, you know, the ethos or if, if lack of a better term of, you know, giving back that we were talking about earlier to us, to outside organizations, but within Pearl Jam organizations and, or sorry, within our fan club and access to tickets, access to sales of things and, you know, to, to front row tickets to, I'm sure can explain more of it, but we're, we're very, you know, we're all fans of bands. So we, you know, we like things like that growing up when we were spending $7 for a ticket, you'd want to, or, or buy a record that had something cool in it. You know, it's, you always want a little bit of extra, but you want to kind of look out for the fan because, you know, ultimately they're going to come back and they're what pay your bills. And, and you want to, you want to be as, not necessarily as accessible, but maybe, you know, want, want them to have the best experience possible, I guess. And that's, that's kind of how we look at it. And, and we make a big deal about it. And that was, that's a, that's, that's a thing that we talk about a lot. It's like, well, what should we do this year for, for the fan club or what, what do you think they would want? Or, you know, we, we second guess it or we third guess it or Tim, we talk to Tim about it and we listen to fans and what they want too. So it's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that have come out of the, the fan club in terms of, there's, there's these these small organizations. There's one called the Wishlist Organization, which is run by this woman named Laura Trafton and some of her friends. And they're not directly associated with Pearl Jam, but they have come up through the the ranks of the fans. And they will have little pre parties around the United States while we're playing. They've done that just of their own thing. So in terms of the fans, they're very pro. Our friends are very proactive in wanting to help people just and just go out and do it. You know. And we don't have to ask them. And it's it's kind of interesting to see that whole thing arrive. There's a thing called Team McCready, I think, that has done some stuff that has done that. So, it, But the wish list is one of the bigger ones. But, again, that's of their own. That they came up, that came up they're out of their own enthusiasm. That's so great. And, I mean, I like that because it, it, imp- it implies that you guys are sort of spreading that just through your own. You know, it's like you guys are doing good works. Your fans are picking up on that. They're doing good works. I mean, I love that. That's that makes it so worth it. I mean, I always say this business is a tough business because, you know, when you're starting out as a young artist, mm-hmm. you just are thinking about like, oh, you know, I wish that someday I could make a dollar doing this. Like, I just want to put out the song because I love songwriting. But I always say we're actually in the business. I mean, if I'm doing my job right, we're in the business of creating career artists. So it's so nice to talk to a career artist who, like, you got to do this your whole life, but you are a music fan and you are, like, someone who loved to oh. know, listen to music and go to clubs and all that stuff that everybody loves to do, you know? So you're a fan, too. I always have been. I still am. I go to record stores and now I'm going to look up his sets and figure out what that's all about. And, you know, I'm going to probably go look through <laughs> vinyl. And so I I do all that's I'm, I'm serious. I, I'm into I love to find the thing about me is I get caught in the I get caught in the eighties and the nineties in terms of like in in, in the sorry seventies eighties nineties in terms of music and I I get stuck in that and then I need to know what's going on these days pretty much I mean I, I know a lot of bands now like Black Rebel, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and things like that but I get caught in a thing where I need to get out of it I don't know why I'm going on a tangent right now but um, <laughs> I, I get caught in like listening to certain music and then kind of don't. I, I'll like all new wave for, you know, a year. And it's like, I got to just, I have to expand my horizons sometimes. So I'd like to hear about new bands. Cool. Even if they're, you know, old. I don't know where I'm going with that. But, um. <laughs> Even if they're old. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike McCready, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, no worries, Portia. Thank you so much. 
Wing Low by The Gossip. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Liv Bruce and Ben Hopkins of Power Bottom. Liv and Ben, welcome to The Future of What? Oh my God, thank you for having us. Hi, thank you so much. We're so excited to be here. So today we have you here to talk about your tour writer and how did that all come about? Can you explain it for our listening audience, what you guys have been up to? Basically, the idea started germinating when we played at a venue that had gendered bathrooms and the signage was, it basically was reducing gender identities down to body parts, Mm -hmm. which is violent and tacky and awful. (laughs) And doing that is, violent to trans people, but also really violent to anyone. But I was specifically concerned with the kind of trans unfriendliness of that. And I started thinking about it and thinking about if we ever played there again, bringing our own signs to cover the ones that the bathroom had. Mm. And then I was, well, I don't want to print out signs that say men's and women's on them because that's not really the most politically exciting thing to me with politically exciting to me is gender neutral bathrooms. And then I was like, well, what if we did that at every venue? Or what if we proposed that at every venue? And the idea kind of snowballed from there. That was the point where uh, I started talking to our wonderful manager, Jeanette Wall, and our booking agent, Josh Lindgren, about it. And that's when we, and then we started doing it. <laughs> Pretty much as soon as we signed with a booking agent, we started doing it. And that's kind of the history, the rough history of it. And what's the reception been from venues? Basically, they read your tour writer and it says you need to have... The response from venues, it varies. We get a lot of places that are happy to do it and completely understand. There are some places that we need to make more of a compromise with them due to kind of the existing architecture of the venue and kind of what they can do. And then there's some places where due to some local law that's been on the books for like 200 years, we can't do it. But I I was definitely surprised by how many venues were willing and able to meet that request of ours. You know, I, I feel like this is part of, you know, our episode today, we're talking about artists who are either giving back or are being activists and having, you know, causes that they support. And I feel like one of the the craziest things about this whole conversation is that really people need to just communicate a lot of times. And I feel like people can act like human beings and everybody seems to be really surprised by that. But, you know, I think this is a really good example of that. It's like, just ask, just say, hey, listen, this is an issue that's important to us. Can you guys help us out with that? And like you say, most of the venues are able to do it if they can, because you haven't really gotten pushback from a venue who's like, no, we don't believe in that, right? No, we haven't gotten, no one has ever looked me in the eye and said, I don't believe in that. Right. People, there, there are people who, it's like, so, it's such a complicated thing to put on a show in, in, some, in some ways. And there's a lot of people involved. So sometimes there'll be like, oh, well, this venue is actually owned by someone who doesn't live in the city. And we would need to communicate with them about it. And, we'd be, and we don't really know how to have that conversation. It's, it's really, I think it brings up, I think sometimes when there's conflict around it, it, it's really 
nervousness on the part of someone who doesn't know if they have the authority to do mm. that or who, who wants to make sure that their job won't be in jeopardy, which I totally understand. Yeah. Right. And in a lot of those situations, what ends up working best is one of, one of us having a conversation with that person once we get to the venue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you said, people talking face-to-face is usually the most efficient and effective way to get things done. Right. Absolutely. But it's not, that's not the default because when you're on tour, you're only, you're obviously only in the city for a day. So right. when you're working out these details a week beforehand, you can't have that face-to-face conversation. Right. But yeah, usually the face-to-face is the best way to accomplish it. So another aspect of this that's important is that you guys put in the rider is, is accessibility. So there need to be gender ne- neutral bathrooms, but they also need to be accessible. So they can't be just off in some attic somewhere that takes 10 years to get there. Yeah, that, obvious thing. <laughs> that was, that was also informed by the venue that inspired this whole thing. Because when I brought up my problem with the, with the venue's bathroom signs to someone on site that day, they were like, oh, well, there's, there's a bathroom for you people. It's just up the stairs. It feels like up an unlit flight of stairs in a dark room. I think it was in a part of the venue that normally is, that like is occasionally used for shows, but it wasn't really part of the floor plan of the show that we were playing. Right. They're just like, oh, well, you can go there. <laughs> I, like, I like the use of you people too. That's nice. I, yeah, so yeah as I said that, I realized I'm, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. I don't know if that's specifically what was said <laughs> But that to was me, sort but of the implication, was, right? <laughs> that, was, that was the implication was, oh, you people can pee over here. Right. And, and so, yeah, that was something that I felt like was important to put into the language of that clause in the rider, that you can't just say, oh, your gender-neutral bathroom is this bush in the back here. That's not what they were actually saying to me, but that's hyperbole. Right. Really, that's hyperbole? <laughs> Yes. No, um, there was actually recently in the news, I said a bush in the backyard because there was a news uh, pundit recently who said in response to conflict over, I think, North Carolina's bathroom bill. She was like, well, can't they just pee in the bushes? Oh, my God. Yeah. There was a pundit who said that. And it's actually the woman who played the best friend in Clueless. Oh, that's um, Stacey Dash. Dash. Yes. Yeah, Stacey Dash. Yeah, she likes to smack her with a fish. Have you noticed how the Republican Party has been falling back more and more on like washed up actors of the 80s and 90s, like Scott Baio at the convention? What is going on, guys? I hadn't hadn't (laughs) noticed that trend, but it's totally real. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. I mean, how do you a political party where no musicians like you? No musicians. (laughs) They couldn't get a... one musician to play at the RNC. They had to have a house band. <laughs> right, right. And then nobody wanted to let them use their actual, you know, the music. Song, yeah. It, the whole thing is too funny. I mean, Donald Trump walking out to Queen, give me a break. I know. Well, well, thank, yeah, thank like, God. Gay man died of AIDS. Love that. Yeah. yeah thank, that's their... thank God that a few musicians are willing to give the Republican Party rights to their songs because if if they could get other people's songs more easily, we might have never gotten the Freedom Girls. Do you remember that? Yeah, like, those bitches are nice. The three girls lip-syncing and dancing on stage and that banger that they were singing. I loved it. Yeah. It was so good. That's amazing. Donald Trump's Trump's daughter has a song that's pretty good. Really? Yeah, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's truly upsetting. Wow. It'll take the pain off the walls. 
Well, you know, his number one, uh, he's got 100% support from the constituency of people who he has given trust funds to. You notice that? Like oh, 100% of his children Damn. are like totally on board with Damn. him. <laughs> Glad they're on board. Yeah. Okay, Mike, we got derailed by Trump. I don't know how. Like, Always happens. Seems to happen a lot these days. Oh, my God. So, yeah, can you talk about the crazy North Carolina bathroom laws for a second? I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on why bathrooms are suddenly the, like, new battleground area? They're such a basic right. Do you know what I mean? Like, in its own way, it's like, as sort of gender conforming people, like, continue to establish, like, the fact that, like, we deserve basic rights, like, a place to pee that is safe and respectful towards who like we identify as being Mm -hmm. like people, specifically Republicans will you find any opportunity to like demonize us as like sexual villain, like, you know, villains or whatever. Like, I mean, that's what the big argument they have with these transgender bathrooms. They're like, well, I mean, I don't want my daughter to be assaulted. by said ban of the dress, which is like the most problematic thing (laughs) perhaps of all time. I don't know. It's just, it's this time honored tradition of conservative people resisting change for the most basic things. I just like if it wasn't bathrooms, it'd be something else like drinking fountains. Mm, oh, that's a sick comparison. I I think that it also just has to do with the fact that public bathrooms are the most commonly gendered public space. Mm. And so that's a good point. When and so when your identity disrupts our cultural norms of gender, the first public place where that becomes an issue is a public restroom. Or but there's also there's other gendered public spaces. There's a gym locker room, which is also something that is up for debate, or not up for debate, but I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a current kind of battleground of this issue. But there, I think there are other gendered public spaces, like certain stores that like, like a store like Victoria's Secret or something. Those are, those are also frontiers for this conversation that's being had about gender on a national level. But the first and most obvious one is bathrooms, just because they're the most commonly gendered space. Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is part of a bigger discussion that I've been having for years and years, because my previous incarnation, I used to be an anthropologist, and I did American culture. Oh, wonder- shut up, really? Yeah. Logical, you know, devolution into record label. Yeah, it's a downward spiral. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, but I, I used to always talk to my 101 classes about, you know, colors. In America. And, you know, what would you do if you were, let's say you were a cis man and you went over to your male friend's house and he had a pink razor on his bathroom sink? What would you think? And everyone was like, well, that he had a girlfriend. Right. Right. Because it couldn't possibly be his. Because what would that mean about him to own a pink razor? Yeah. And it's like, it is that fundamental in our culture. You know, it is literally the colors of things that you buy. Are, are gendered in a, in, in a way that, that really upsets people, that gets people head up, you know, when they think about it. So it's, it's just, I mean, it's just such a massive conversation. But anyway, I could talk to you guys forever about this, but I don't want to yeah. take up your whole lives. So is, what's, this is your first step. This is a very exciting, cool move that you guys are making an effort to be activists in this, in this world that you just, this is just part of your daily lives. Like you go on tour, there are bathrooms at the venue. You're trying to do this. And it's almost like the the effort, the question of effort, like this is one thing that I think, I don't know. I don't want to speak to live ever, but there's this question of like, 
is it that hard for us to do? And it's like, no, like, is it that much effort? Like, are we being that brave? The answer is no. I think we're just being respectful towards our fans and people who come to the show and people who share values that we do. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, act, call, being called an activist is a great boon for anyone's ego. It's a fun thing to talk about at a dinner party. But demanding something as simple as a safe place for a gender non-conforming person to pee at one of our shows is, sure, it's activism, but it's truly just a basic gesture of decency. And it's like, it's incredibly flattering to be called an activist and everything like that. But really, I think there's so many more people who like organize, and like do things like that. And like are the least we can do for our people who want to come to our shows is just give them a safer space to see the show in. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it, it's just basic human decency. Like really it is. I love having a big ego trust. But like, <laughs> I'm just saying like, there's this thing about like, it's, it's just a basic level of respect. Yeah. And that's, you know, but not everyone, not everyone goes there. Not everyone sure, chooses to do they that. Hopefully but will. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think that you guys, you can't say you're not leading the way in that way, which is pretty rad. Well, that's very nice. What's your next step? Do you guys have ideas about like, if we were, you know, if we were making lots of money on this, what would you do next? Like, what's your, do you have like an activism wish like something that you could put into fruition? I think accessibility at venues is something that is we're very curious in, which is harder to tackle because it's oftentimes an issue of architecture. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's unacceptable for a venue to have one bathroom up a flight of stairs. Like that's just not okay because some mm-hmm. people can't go up the stairs. You know right. I mean, unassisted. It's yeah. the kind of thing of like really educating people on the sense that like to have a really cool, like, I don't know what anyone thinks is punk. Punk is this word that keeps me up at night because it's so frustrating. But I guess it's this idea of like all inclusivity of outsiders and stuff like that, quote unquote, whatever it means to be an outsider. Mm-hmm. And if a venue is to truly be punk, shouldn't it provide a place for like every kind of person to like have a good, respectful time at a show? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. And then I think accessibility is a big part of that. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, I guess what's interesting to me right now is the kind of conversations that are being had around what the audience does during a show and specifically about dancing versus moshing and figuring out a way that people can, I don't know, have a good time doing what they want. Because I think there's this, there's this mistaken perception that it's only the awful bros who like to mosh. Mm. And... That's not true. No. I've been to I've been to hardcore punk shows where I've seen people who aren't bros boshing. And I think that kind of something I'm interested in is figuring out how we can identify what exactly about that behavior is harmful or when it gets to be a problem and figure out how we can allow it to exist in a healthy way and in a respectful way without creating a space where someone who just wants to go to a show to push people around and do that. I love that idea because I miss moshing. When I was in my 20s, I used to mosh all the time. I missed it so much. Right? Don't you miss it so much? It's so fun. And I feel like... And it used to be such a thing. It used to be something that everybody could do at every show and it wasn't scary and it wasn't a problem. I've had some amazing, amazing times moshing at shows, but I also... Totally understand that it is a problem if people are having physical boundaries of theirs crossed. Totally. Because of boshing at a show. Right. And 
yeah, I want to figure out a way to, that, that, that this can all work. I want to figure out a way that people who want to be close to the band but don't want to mosh can do that. People who want to be close to the band but want to mosh can do that. People who don't want to be touched by bodies that are moving that way don't have to deal with it. Right. But I, I'm still not exactly sure how to do that. And that's, that's kind of on the horizon. That, that is a great one. And I would totally help you advocate for that because I miss it. And I remember it being such a big fun part of going to rock shows for me when I was a kid. Cause it was, yeah. it was safe. I felt like I was not going to get, you know, you could, you could go in if you wanted to, you could come out if you wanted to, you weren't going to the early nineties was this crazy time. I mean, I remember moshing at uh-huh. shows that you would never believe like the bands, you know, they weren't, they were like pop bands and everybody's just like losing it and having this wonderful time. And it was because it was part of the culture. It was part of, you know, the people went to see shows, the thing that people went to see shows for. But I never felt threatened. But then I think something happened. I think that it took a turn because really it has not been a thing in the last, you know. Yeah. Well, what I've, what I've always assumed is that what happened to moshing is that there were people that whole time throughout the, I don't know, early 90s, throughout that whole time who were having their experience at a show worsened by the people moshing. And I think that those people finally got to be heard. You could say that's because of the internet. You could say that's because of the current feminist practices that are happening in culture right now, being responsive to that. But I'm, I'm happy we finally get to hear from those people who weren't having a great time because of moshing. But now I want to figure out how we can maintain their safety and their comfort at shows, mm-hmm. but also do this fun thing. That can be fun when it's done respectfully. And yeah, yeah, when it's done safely. Absolutely. And I will say for the record that the worst I ever got hurt at a show was a Duran Duran show. I got punched no. in the face by a bunch of 40-year-old ladies, like so bad. Oh my God, they were so excited about John Taylor and Simon LeBond. They just were like freaking out and just Whoa. wailed. I mean, they like ripped my dress off. They like punched me in the face. It was crazy. Never got that hurt in a mosh, mosh pit in my whole life. Oh, wow. So that's that's the next area of activism, clearly. <laughs> we got to get these 40-year-old ladies under control. We got we to gotta rein in these 40-year-old ladies with the Duran Duran show. We got to get rid of the Chardonnay at the show. <laughs> Yes, that is totally the problem, no doubt. Well, Liv Bruce and Ben Hopkins, what a pleasure it was to talk to the two of you. Thank you guys so much for coming on The Future of What? Yeah, thank I'm you so much. I've been great. a fan for so long. I love, I've loved all the albums you guys have put out over the years so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you later. was Ugly Cherries by Powerbottom. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? 
Last fall, we went to Washington, D.C. to participate in the Future of Music Policy Summit, where I interviewed Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. Meryl told me that she was helped by an organization called RPM to set up a charitable fund. If you're in a band and want to give back but don't know how, go to revolutionsperminute.net. It's a company that provides artists with strategy and support for their activism and philanthropy. Here's part of that interview with Meryl. But speaking of, you know, issues, do you want to talk about the water fountain a little bit? Sure. So, so one thing that we've been able to do that's been one of those things on the tour bus that gives me feel, makes me feel connected is that we secretly add on a dollar to every one of our tickets that we sell. We don't tell people that, but that's what's happening. And then we take that dollar and we put it in a fund. You know, we raised a lot of money through that fund and then we disperse that to different charitable organizations, nonprofits that we believe are doing great stuff. So on this last album, we wrote a song called Water Fountain and it was a lot about, I live in Oakland, California and, you know, California is in the middle of a, a really big drought and Oakland is also in the midst of a huge transition, I would say in danger of losing a core of its community to gentrification and also deteriorating in its own ways, or at least when I was writing that song. So, and I just also gone to Haiti to spend a lot of time studying drumming there and learned a lot about the the economy of Haiti as it pertained to the economy of, of my country of the United States. So that song was grappling with all these things and it became the song that a lot of companies were asking, you know, for, it it was the hit song of the album. And ironically was talking about a lot of anti-capitalist stuff. So it was like, you know, Starbucks really wants your water fountain song for its new summer line of iced drinks. And I was like, "Mm, don't, that doesn't leave this room, by the way. (laughs) That was a theoretical example. So, so I remember sitting in the record label office, cry- I was like almost crying because they were like, you know, like you could win for you, blah, blah, thousands of dollars. You've written this great song and now you deserve to just, you know, like bathe in cash or whatever. And I kept saying, no, I just said, no, 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 this, this doesn't feel right. We said we used it for a couple of animated things, you know, art, other, other pieces of art that feels, you know, like a better way to use music for me. And then we got offered a big ad from Sonos to have our, our music be part of the Sonos sound system ad campaign. And they presented us this really great ad and it was these cool looking rainbow Lego looking building blocks filling a room and Sonos is a, is, you know, a great supporter of musicians and how, and how to, you know, that music is the essence of why they, they are in existence as a company. So we did a, a bunch of research and RPM, you know, as our, they, RPM basically powers our little charitable fund. So we had them suss out and I kept saying, no, 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 it doesn't feel right to put this song in an ad. But finally I said, if you give us X amount, we're going to start a water charity with this. And they agreed. So we were able to take that big chunk of money and stick it in this fund and now have dispersed that to several organizations that are doing work specifically with water, including water you know, drought issues for communities in Central California, the Gulf Restoration Network in New Orleans, and Partners in Health in Haiti. And we still have more to give. So... To me, this is this really, you know, is also this really cool link between art and activism that I always wanted to be part of Tune Yards. You know, that when I built the music project, it always felt like this is music 
that wants to have a greater lens. It wants to look outward, out into the world. It doesn't want to be its own thing that is just about popularity and just about getting people to like my music. It, it wants to refract stuff that's happening around the world. And, and this has been, for me, something that's so selfishly satisfying. Every time I play a show, instead of saying like, oh, you know, there are 500 people I have to play in front of, it's like, okay, 500 bucks we made for the Water Fountain Fund, you know? And that it really connects me with, again, my spiritual connection to music, my my greater intention with music and, and wanting to connect to people in that way. And certainly has also introduced me to a lot of people who are doing water activism around the world, which is great. I saved up all my pennies and I gave them to this special guy. When he had enough of them, he bought himself a cherry pie. He gave me a dollar, a blood-soaked was Water Fountain by Tune Yards. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Coy Bowles of the Zach Brown Band. Coy, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. This is so cool to talk to you. So today we are talking about artists who support causes and do things to give back to the community. And so you recently wrote a children's book, and the proceeds from that children's book are going to go to Camp Southern Ground. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And Camp Southern Ground is Zach Brown's sort of lifelong project, dream? Is that, that's what I understand? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty awesome, actually. So I met Zach when I was in, we were both in college, probably a little after freshman year. And we were both playing music in the scene in West Georgia, was the name of the school, kind of on the edge of Georgia and Alabama in a city called Carrollton. Mm-hmm. And we were both playing music, kind of bumped into each other there. He left Carrollton, moved to Atlanta. I kind of left Carrollton and moved to Atlanta. I went to school for music. And when I got out of school, I started looking through the paper. I was kind of forming my own band and was about to try to get my career off the ground with music. And... I started looking through the paper, and everywhere you would look, you would see the Zach Brown bands playing here, the Zach Brown bands playing there. And I had a good friend of mine who was playing in the band with Zach. So I started showing up at their shows, hanging out with them, talking and, and all this. And later on, Zach asked me to come out to his house to write some songs and hang and listen to music and whatnot. And he was living in East of Atlanta in this little small town. And I drove all the way out there, and uh, after we got finished writing songs, it was probably two in the morning, we got this flashlight and walked around his property, and he was like, this is where the camp is going to go. This is where this is going to go. This is where the pool is going to be. This is where the, you know, the kitchen's going to be and all this. He had it all, like, worked out in his brain. And then he left that property and moved to a property in Smyrna, and 
them to camp, move from there to another spot. And he walked me around and showed me where that spot's going to be. And now it's in uh, Fayetteville, Georgia, and it's really happening there. So ever since I've really started hanging out with him, he's had this dream in the back of his head where he can see it all laid out in his, in his mind already, you know, which is really cool that it's uh, coming to fruition now, you know. That's amazing. And to think that he was so committed at such a young age, I mean, already you said you were just, you guys were just freshman year of college. So he was thinking about this even then. That's amazing. Yeah, I think he's, you know, I think uh, him being a camp counselor was a defining moment in his life as far as giving him direction and a a kind of self-confidence and uh, ability to to be yourself and be yourself around other people that he was really looking for. Because if you start talking to him in depth about his life and whatever, there's kind of before he was in camps and then kind of after he was in camps. I think it, it really ignited a part of his brain. And ever since then, he's kind of wanted to be involved or have his own and be able to give that to other people as well. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that is very, um, that is very cool. So we're talking to you today because you wrote a children's book called Will Powers, where there's a will, there's a way. Yes. Yeah, this is my second children's book. So the first one was called Amy Giggles Laugh Out Loud. Wow. And it just kind of came from being on the road. And for years and years and years, you know, when we first started, it was, 12 people, two dogs, and a trailer uh, full of gear behind the bus, and we were all on one bus together, you know? hmm And it's very tight quarters. I mean, that would be equivalent to being, like, in the military on, like, a submarine or something, you know? Right. Like, you're around constantly. And I've always wrote songs where I would go to my own room. I'm an only child, first of all, so I never grew up around brothers and sisters and having to share space like that. But then... Uh, when I got older, I would write songs in my room by myself. And you kind of know when you're writing a good song is when you kind of feel some kind of emotional stirring, which usually ends up in like, you know, like tears or some kind of, you know, thing. But when you're on a bus with, you know, 11 other guys uh, <laughs> and there's no space and, you know, you're in the back of the bus, you know, with a door shut and they open it up to get their socks or something. And you're back there crying. You know, it's like, uh, that's not the place you want to be, you know, so. Anyway, I, but I still wanted to write and be creative. So I, you know, I kind of figured that I'll try writing songs in my head and that turned into writing short stories, which turned into, um, kind of developing this whole idea of me being a storyteller. I was thinking I was going to like direct the next, like Scorsese movie or something, not like write a kid's <laughs> book. So, so I went into this world of trying to figure out how you write kid's books and how you get it done. And, it was a long, bumpy road, and two years later, Amy Giggles came out, and without me really knowing it, it kind of had like an anti-bullying concept to it. I'd never really, I don't have kids, so I uh, i didn't know that an, that bullying and anti-bullying was such a, a big thing in schools now, especially with social media and stuff. So when the book came out, it like really struck a chord with, with teachers and parents and sold way more than I thought it was going to, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And so... When I went to do the second book, which just just came out April 19th, Will Powers, Where There's a Will, There's a Way, I wanted that book to be a follow-up to the Amy Giggles book in terms of it being relevant to what's going on in today's times with teachers and parents. So I went to a bunch of schools and sat down with teachers and principals and said, okay, guys, like, what's going on? Like, what's, what's your issues? And I could totally across the board self-entitlement. And uh, work ethic was the one the, or the two things that just kept popping up. 
self-entitled mostly. And I was like, wow, because I come from a family of, you know, like really hard workers. Like both of my parents and my whole family are kind of uh, people who have been lower class and have struggled. And, you know, their only way of survival is just like we will work it to the bone kind of thing. So I come from that kind of background. So the idea of work ethic being something that um, that was struggling with, you know, in today's uh, kids was just kind of, you kind of bummed me out. So I was like, well, I'll write a story about that. So anyway, uh, yeah, Will, Will Powers is out now, and uh, it's getting great response from teachers and parents because I think that it, it me focusing really hard on it being uh, relevant to what's going on in today's society with kids and there being an issue with work ethic and self-entitlement. So hopefully it'll help. I mean, I can't think of anything cooler than helping teachers and helping parents uh, make kids, you know, uh, have better core qualities, you know? Absolutely. And I think I, you know, I think everything you say is absolutely true. And I'm not surprised to hear that those are the qualities that teachers report kids lacking today. Because I, we talk about this a lot on this show that, you know, we have a problem in American culture because what we see on TV is success. We don't see the hard work that it took to get there. You know, you, you, we have these kids who think that, you know, you, you, you're good at basketball. So then you go into the NBA. They don't see the hundreds and thousands of hours of practice that people put in. Yeah. Millions of layups later. Yeah. Exactly. You don't, you know, drills and, you know, unpleasant things, things you don't want to do. Especially in the music industry, man, it is a hustler's game, you know, like, like, especially Zach with this camp thing. I mean, it's just unbelievable the man, uh, amount of man hours he's put in flying around meeting people, trying to get this big, big idea put together and the right people and the right amount of money and, you know, the or- the organization of it all is just, that in itself must left being one of the most successful bands playing right now and touring the world and all this other stuff and having wife and kids and everything else, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, it's very cool what you're doing and Will Powers, Where There's Will, There's A Way is available right now. Koi Bowles, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Awesome, thank you very much. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Power Bottom, Tune Yards, The Gossip, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have-